Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm sitting here and talking about yeah. this in a way that my dad would never have done and I can't even imagine writing the book while he was alive. I think that uh, our generation has made a choice as well. Um, this has um, been perhaps a particular shift in English society and especially around death where we don't have this tradition of celebrating death which perhaps um, uh, the, the nations with a Celtic background have. We sit there with our sandwiches and a cup of tea and we're just pretending it hasn't happened and we can have tea like we did yesterday and like we will have tomorrow. But I think since this happened in 1978, there's been a shift and of successive generations, including mine, have said, no, this is just not good enough. We want to feel more. We want to show and share our feelings in the belief, I mean, it's not just a self-indulgent showing of feelings, which I think my dad's generation would have thought it would. They would, they would have said, you're just being indulgent. You know, you should, feelings, are, you know, feel, feelings are a luxury. And they have no place in the, in, in the efficient running of life. And I think we've decided now that that's not the case. The emotions are, are central to the way we exist and expressing and sharing them will make us better people. That's an article of faith. We may be wrong, but that's what we feel now. And therefore there is a, a language and there's a, a support background and there's an understanding which didn't exist at the time. I think it's a huge improvement. I think it makes personal relations stronger makes the connections between people stronger and it makes society stronger in the end. She cannot help but see a lifespan as a journey, indeed as a pilgrimage. This isn't fashionable these days, but it's her way of seeing. A life has a destination, an ending, a last saying. She is perplexed and exercised by the way that now in the 21st century we seem to be inventing innumerable ways of postponing the sense of arrival, the sense of arriving at a proper ending. The curious words of Margaret Drabble from her latest book, The Dark Flood Rises, published by Canongate Books. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Do we need to rethink the meaning of old age? And why is it so important to talk about grief? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with two talented novelists, writers of tremendous grit, emotion and courage. Margaret Rabble discusses her latest novel, The Dark Flood Rises, and Richard Beard unpacks the nature of grief as teased out in his powerful memoir, The Day That Went Missing, published by Harville Secker. OK, first up, it's British novelist, memoirist and teacher Richard Beard. Hello, my name is Richard Beard. Uh, I'm an English writer. I've come over to the West Cork Literary Festival at Bantry. It's lovely to be here. I've written ten books, six of them are novels, four of them are non-fiction, and my latest book is called The Day That Went Missing. It's published by Vintage UK, and it's about the death of my brother. It's a memoir uh, about an event that happened in our childhood. I was 11, he was 9. We went swimming in the sea off the coast of Cornwall, 
in the Atlantic, the same sea as we have here in Bantry. And he drowned in the sea when I was nearby, also out of my depth. And the book is an attempt to recover that day because the family, my two brothers and my parents, we all tried to move on by forgetting about what had happened and forgetting about Nicky himself. So the book is an attempt to recover the day and to recover my brother, to somehow bring him back to life by writing about him. Is it possible to recover a memory, do you think, Richard? Well, there are things that can help you, especially in non-fiction. So one of the first things you can do is look at the documentary evidence. For example, when I started this off, the denial had been so complete that I didn't know the day on which he died. We'd never celebrated an anniversary. So by looking at, by discovering the documentation, the death certificate, I found out the day on which he died. That was a start. I didn't know where he died. I had to find out where he died. Again, in my father's filing cabinets after he died. I went through them very closely. There was very little evidence of Nicky's life, but I found a reply to a letter of complaint that he had written to Cornwall County Council about this beach. That was one of his ways of reacting. And therefore, I found out the name of the beach. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known where it was. So the documents are very important, and you can recover the past through documents. So there were the death certificates. Um, there were Nicky's school reports. There were letters that were written by him to him, some of which I found in the attic, not stored in any way, just kind of loose amongst other boxes. Uh, there were the consolation, the condolence letters, which were written to my parents, which were very useful because they gave a picture of the times. This happened in 1978 when things were very different uh, and also gave an idea of Nicky and what he was like, although I did have to allow for that exaggeration that comes when people write about the dead. No one wants to speak ill of the dead. So there is a sense of him being this kind of superhero, which I then had to um, put against the memories of people I could speak to. So there was the documentation, which included newspaper reports. It was a very dramatic death. Um, and the memories of people who were there. So that was my family. I also talked to... Uh, I was very lucky to find one of the lifeboatmen, who was one of the three-man crew in the boat that picked up his body, I talked to old teachers of his uh, and made a point of just trying to put together all the memories that still existed on this earth now to give a picture of Nicky and that day. You began the research for the book just after your father died. Presumably you talked to your mother and your siblings uh, and so on. I'm just wondering, did you feel a responsibility to your family on how you went about unearthing what had happened? Because within all of that, you know, there are questions of responsibility, there are questions related to judgment, and, you know, everyone looks at grief and how you go about um, that process in a very different way. So it was very much a very different journey for your mum and your siblings. I think I felt a responsibility to Nicholas, my dead brother, mm. more than to my living family. He was the one that we'd betrayed by forgetting him. He was the one who we'd made disappear. He was the one who'd gone missing because we'd let this day go missing. So I think I, said I felt a responsibility towards him. And then also a responsibility to, to myself to bear witness to what I'd seen. Because I had been in the water with him, my memories were very strong and intense about that physical sense of being in the water and knowing that I was about to drown and seeing my brother who was drowning. These are very strong, intense memories. I'd come out of the water, I'd run back to where the family was, abandoning my brother Nicholas in the water. Because already I was feeling guilty at the time of having, having let him down, having, having 
um, been in this position with him where we weren't being supervised and when he was in trouble and then knowing that he was probably already dead. Even at the time, I didn't say to the family, he's dead. Uh, I, 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 I said that we needed help. Uh, and I feel there's a responsibility, there was a responsibility for me to share this story that I hadn't told before because when 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 it was when the the, the lifeboat came the helicopter came um and it was accepted that he was dead on arrival at hospital and we started closing down that day straight away i never told the story to anybody of me being in the water and straight away there were all the when when a child dies there are so many formal things you need to do there are papers to sign there's the there's crying to be done there, there, there are tears that need to, to fall there's the sheer horror of the event so the details got lost and none of my family it turned out either knew or remembered that I had been in the water with him and so I did feel a responsibility to myself as well to, to tell this story to get it out and to, to let, allow them to share what had happened and then I think they enjoyed sharing how they had responded to it how what their memories of the event were so we managed to pool our memories uh, and I think then we got into a genuine family situation where we had a collective responsibility for what had happened. Uh, and we all started to own our own memories instead instead of just hiding them away. Did the writing of the memoir allow you maybe to look at the decisions that your parents made um, after your brother had died? Um, did it give you more space to understand them? I know at your talk yesterday you mentioned that you were on a family holiday and I think um, you had a one week of formal grief and then you went back to the holiday home which you were staying at and finished out the holiday. And some people could find that very harsh, but other people could look at it that your parents were trying to, um, I suppose, uh, control the grief, manage the grief and possibly create some feeling of um, uh, normalcy within the whole uh, chaos of the moment. Well, this thing about resuming the holiday, which I didn't know anything about because I'd blocked it out, has had my brothers. I found this out from my mum when we started talking about it again. So we left uh, the coast to go back to our home in Swindon, which is inland. We had the funeral, which we didn't attend as children. And then from the funeral, my mum and dad came back to the house, picked us up, and we went back to the holiday rental because it was paid for they didn't know what else to do they thought it was a good thing to to effectively get back on the horse something bad had happened and we had to carry on with life as if we weren't cowed as if we hadn't been defeated by death so it was very defiant but it was also very hard to understand but I didn't even know that had happened uh, because we'd blocked it out because it was it must have been hideously traumatic at the time to go back and I now know from my mum and a letter that she wrote at the time that we went back to the beach. She wanted us to go back to the actual beach a week later. And I can only imagine we pretended that we were on holiday. And I mean, it's a very fine beach uh, in Cornwall, a kind of beach which, which people in Ireland would, would know that you, it's the kind of place you're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to have wonderful family times. But it must have been horrific for us to be back there so soon afterwards. And the book is part an attempt to understand that. Yes, how grief was processed in the minds of two adults who had lost their child, who were deeply traumatized themselves, but who were also trying to live up, look after their living children. Also about how grief was processed in 1978, which is very different to the way it is now. There wasn't uh, that assumption of backup and support that you can get from counseling, for example, barely existed and certainly wasn't on offer um, to us at the time. So the book does become a 
an investigation in that sense of the way grief has changed, the way we try and process grief and, and understand death, but in a very immediate sense, because I didn't know anything about the event because it had been deleted from our family history. It's also an investigation of what actually happened, and that involves who was to blame. I think it's hard to investigate in this way without getting into a mindset which is slightly like a detective. You think, well, something has ha someone has died, just like in a detective story. Who is the killer? Who is to blame? Is it the ferocity of the sea? Is it the lack of health and safety precautions on behalf of the council? Is it my dad? Is it my mum? Was it me? I was with him at the end. Was it Nicky himself? All these different suspects arise, if you like, in the story. And part of it is to investigate, well, who is to blame? You must have found yourself in a very strange place, if you will, when you went about the research, because you have to bring in um, um, a degree of professionalism in how you go about the research and who you interview and all the note-taking and so on and have a process within it. But you're dealing with your family members and highly sensitive, emotional and traumatic experiences that all your siblings shared. So that must have put you in a very strange um, uh, space, did it? Well, strange, yes, but at the same time, the point of the emotional denial is to become detached emotionally. So the very process of denying Nikki's death allowed me, if you like, to have the skills to then go back and keep the emotion slightly at a distance and to, yes, interview my mum uh, about this very emotional subject. But as emotional as any interview I did in the book was with the lifeboatman who I found who who's now quite elderly, who was on the boat that day. And I found myself asking him increasingly severe questions, absolutely brutal questions about the state of Nicky's body, about how he found, about how he looked as he was winched up into the helicopter. And the paradox there is that I was only able to do that. I was, I was, even in that interview, I was staying emotionally detached because that is what I had learned from the event of my brother's death. If you want to deal with anything, you detach yourself emotionally. So th what I was investigating allowed me to investigate what I was investigating. You said something immensely uh, courageous yesterday and also quite uncomfortable. You mentioned that, you know, you were, um, I think, 11 years of age and you were getting into competitive sports and um, you quite fancied yourself as pretty good at sports. And your brother was catching up on you. Uh, your brother Nicholas was catching up with you and he had uh, quite a lot of talent too. And you were at that competitive age between uh, the two of you and that you not necessarily didn't quite like each other, but you didn't... Um, get on uh, possibly as well and I'm just wondering were you very conscious of that as you were putting together this memoir because you're rediscovering your brother his personality his whole identity who and what he was and that is coloured I would imagine by grief by guilt by lots of ranging different emotions and also you knew him as a young boy and not as an adult and as a father now so there's so many different things you were juggling yeah well I think part of our erasure of Nicholas as a person was that he died, we didn't want to think about it, so we let him drift into this neutral state where he wasn't really a human being, he was just our dead brother. That was his role. His role was to be our brother and to be dead um, and not be a full human being with a character, uh, an attitude. And one of the things I discovered when I was writing the book, which was as uncomfortable as anything, was that I remembered he was a boy of very spiky attitude. Um, and he was competitive, and I felt that competition. And because he was younger, I quite resented him uh, to the point of 
in a, in sibling terms, not really liking him very much. I wanted to, I wanted his his pieces of chocolate cake. I wanted to eat his cherry yogurts. You know, I wanted what he had be ahead of him as much as possible. And that was very uncomfortable, but it also felt very true. It came back as a very true memory. And that was almost a mark for me of when I knew that honesty was important to the process of writing the book, when I thought, well, this is true, and I'm going to admit to this, and this is very important in this story, actually, because it partly explains why the two of us might have wanted to get away from the adults and be somewhere else on our own, proving ourselves not just to our not just proving our independence from our parents, but proving something to each other, which may have been why we got in trouble in the first place. How did your mum cope with the writing of the book? Because presumably she was unpacking a lot of her own grief as she was watching you explore um, the the story of your brother and his, and his death. I felt when I first talked to her about it, not having talked to her about Nikki for over thirty five years. And of course, when you're a child, you don't talk to your mum really about your brother. So I probably never talked to her about him, in fact. I felt that it was a huge relief to her that there was an outpouring. She really wanted to talk about this. It was something she wished she could have talked about a lot earlier. But um, my dad didn't want to talk about it. He really set that tone in the family of, of not speaking about Nikki. So I think she really wanted to talk about it. It was a huge relief to her. And I think she was surprised, as we all were, by how our own memories had twisted and manipulated the memory to offer us comfort, which when I then found out from the documentary evidence and from talking to other people outside the family, when I found out that some of our memories just weren't tenable, they weren't true, um, that was very difficult. That was very difficult for everybody. But then quite quickly, I think we accepted the truth was not our memory. The truth was something between our memory and this, this documentary evidence that I discovered. Did you resent your dad in terms of how he went about managing his family's grief? And within that, you know, um, as a father, he was possibly trying to protect you. Presumably you look at it a completely different way once you had your own children. I know you have three kids. I think I did resent my dad. I think I, there was a certain amount of anger, and the, partly because the more I found out about it, I saw how damaging I think it is to repress grief entirely, and also how, how unfair it was on Nicky to completely obliterate him from our family history. I do think he was doing what he thought was, was best. He, he genuinely thought that this would help us all move on and stop being so sad, and this is the tragedy for him and for my mum at the time. It must have been... Uh, just dreadful for them to see their other children so bereft. Um, however, he did make this decision for everybody. Mm. And that's what fathers used to do. Fathers used to make a decision and everyone would have to stick to it. They would decide what would happen and uh, their strength or their weakness was then judged by, by whether that was a good decision. But he decided that we weren't going to talk about it and therefore nobody could talk about it. And I think I do resent that because times did change and as they changed, it would have been possible for him to be a little bit more, more flexible about this, but there was never any sign of flexibility. He'd made his decision and he was going to stick with it. And I don't think that's uncommon, but at the same time, I do feel a certain amount of uh, anger about that. Yeah. But Richard, we're a much more confessional society now. We disclose a lot of things that we're uncomfortable about, whether it's to do with life or will in ourselves. We talk about shame, regret, guilt. Um, we're much more compassionate in how we communicate all the kind of the crazy stuff that happens in our lives and we're more tolerant. So when people say to you, well, that's how they did it in those times and that's how we all did it then. How did that sit with you now? 
Well, I'm sitting here and talking about yeah. this in a way that my dad would never have done, and I can't even imagine writing the book while he was alive. I think that uh, our generation has made a choice as well. Um, we've looked at... This has um, been perhaps a particular shift in English society, and especially around death, where we don't have this tradition of celebrating death, which perhaps um, uh, the, the nations with a Celtic background have. We sit there with our sandwiches and a cup of tea, and we're just pretending it hasn't happened, and we can have tea like we did yesterday and like we will have tomorrow. But I think since this happened in 1978, there's been a shift, and the successive generations, including mine, have said, no, this is just not good enough. We want to feel more. We want to show and share our feelings in the belief, I mean, it's not just a self-indulgent showing of feelings, which I think my dad's generation would have thought it would. They would, they would have said, you're just being indulgent. You know, you should, feelings, are, you know, feel, feelings are a luxury, and they have no place in the, in, in the efficient running of life. And I think we've decided now that that's not the case. The emotions are, are central to the way we exist, and expressing and sharing them will make us better people. That's an article of faith. We may be wrong, but that's what we feel now. And therefore, there is a, a language, and there's a, a support background, and there's an understanding which didn't exist at the time. I think it's a huge improvement. I think it makes personal relations stronger, makes the connections between people stronger, and it makes society stronger in the end. You must have felt a lot of anger and uh, frustration growing up, but not knowing where it was stemming from because you hadn't released your feelings and you hadn't screamed, cried and played out those feelings, did you? I think that's probably true. And also, I had learnt at this formative age, at the age of 11, if something emotionally disturbing happens, that you should shut it down. That's that's the way that you deal with it. Emotion has no place, no useful place in, in, in the way that I should be living my life, according to what I was learning from from the adults in my life. So later on, if I was emotionally disturbed by a completely different emotion, which uh, love, for example, is emotionally disturbing. Mm. It's something which um, creates a chaos. Destabilizing. In, yes, exactly. And therefore, my reaction would be, oh, I recognize that as emotion. I have learnt. I must shut that down. I must just move on from this and do have my cup of tea and my sandwich like I did yesterday and like mm -hmm. I will tomorrow just act as if nothing has happened in the end you end up with no emotional life whatsoever because closing everything down has become the default position which isn't very useful valuable or instructive what did your children make of the memoir presumably they were aware of this um, story that you know as it was unfolding as you were writing and maybe when they were growing up they would have seen family photographs and so on but they must have been quite troubled in one way, but very, um, but very proud of you in another way. Well, there's two elements to that. My, my two oldest are 20 and 18, and so they've read the book. Uh, my youngest hasn't read it yet. But they had, didn't know anything about this story because we didn't talk about it until I, until I started researching it. Right. So it was, it was news for them as well. But both of them had something very astute to say. So they read the book and they were amazed by the story because things are so different. But because they're another generation again, they said, Dad, this is, this is you know, we enjoyed this and we learned quite a lot about you here, but you could have said much more about yourself. So they're already on the next stage. They're saying they recognize that there's still something held back and there is something held yeah. back because I'm not as good at this kind of, confessional honesty as they will be in their turn that they're more honest with their emotions and they have more access to their emotions 
just by being the next generation. And they recognise there is still a reticence in the way the book is written. I, I thought that was really interesting. Do you believe in closure? Do you? Well, it's difficult because shutting emotions down is a kind of closure. Mm -hmm. And if you shut them down prematurely, it will feel like closure. Um, but in their emotions which will come back, they will seep up or round the side of that closed door. The door that you thought was closed mm -hmm. has seals that leak. Uh, and whatever you're trying to shut away, if you've shut it away prematurely, will start coming back and will start invading your life and permeating your life. So I think closure can happen, but if you if, if you've try and close emotions off too early, they're just going to come back to you. And because I tend to do that as a, uh, out of habit, for myself, I think closure is quite a dangerous proposition. Yeah. But presumably, um, a lot of your readers will be hoping that you found this process somewhat therapeutic, or that it was healing to a degree, or that in some way it has helped you deal with the full um, experience of the past. But maybe that's, it's not that clear cut. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to, to readers for being compassionate in that mm. way. And they are. And they want me to have written the book and therefore no longer uh, suffer under, under the weight of this, this, this hidden tragedy, mm. as it were. I, th I think that the habits so ingrained that started then of ignoring strong emotional response that change is possible but it happens gradually the problem about a book is it's one thing it's there it, it exists i've made it happen and it would be lovely to believe that it created an epiphany a moment where everything changed everything changed for the better and that's what a lot of people think about books generally if you write that book everything will change but anyone who's written books knows that that's not quite the case as soon as your book goes in the bookshop it doesn't make you that completely different person you imagined you'd become um, and you sit down, you write another book, and there's still more things to say, there are more changes to make. I think the change comes gradually, So, the, but the answer, therefore, is no, not really. It hasn't changed everything by writing the book. Well, do you feel a sense of release in terms of that you have brought your brother back and his identity and given him his proper place within the family? In a way, that doesn't feel like it's about me. It feels like it's about him. Yes, he has a presence now in my life as a real human being with full psychological uh, all-round being he is just someone who exists in a way that he hadn't been for so long and that is that is something which has definitely changed but it just doesn't really feel that that's about me it feels that that's about him is that when people say the dead live on in your mind he didn't live on our, in our in our minds in any meaningful way but now he does live in my mind in a way that he didn't i've made him come alive by doing this research and by building up a picture of him in which I slightly use my, my fictional skills as a novelist as well, is that I've had to, I've had to flesh him out because he has no flesh. Um, and that has been, for me, as, as rewarding an element, of, as rewarding a result of this book as any.
And that was British novelist, memorist and teacher Richard Beard. The Day That Went Missing is published by Harville Secker and retails for just under 15 euros in paperback. OK, coming up next, it's Day Market Rabble. very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're meeting with a range of novelists and writers who took part in this year's West Cork Literary Festival. Next up, it's British novelist, editor and literary scholar Dame Margaret Drabble. Hello, my name is Margaret Drabble and I'm a novelist. I've published 19 novels and I'm a scholar and literary critic. 
Margaret, what a great privilege uh, to meet you here at the West Cork Literary Festival. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and we can take it from there. Do you think it takes great creativity and will in that courage to live well all through life? It certainly does. Uh, I don't know about creativity. I, I don't know what we mean by creativity. I think there are many ways of living well. But yes, to keep on living well takes a lot of perseverance as well as creativity. And um, when you began the research for the book, um, it's such an interesting narrative, but it is quite a reflection on old age and how we look at age and also our own um, mortality, if you will. I was just wondering, what was the big question you were asking yourself? I was asking myself whether people age in different ways, what the nature of ageing is, whether the nature of ageing is changing now, which it certainly is. I was exploring really different ways in which we grow old. I think younger people tend to think all Old people are the same, but they're not. They, they have very different perspectives. And everyone has a different uh, need within how they age and uh, or a different want. Um, tell me, Fran was a very, um, very likeable character and very uh, courageous character in her own right. Um, you must have had great fun writing her, did you? Yes, I was quite pleased when I invented her current job. She's in her 70s, so yeah. she's quite old, but she goes around inspecting care homes for the elderly, yeah. which gave me a wonderful opportunity to go around nosing into care homes and seeing what they were like and seeing how people lived. And it also gave her quite a lot of mobility, which I think is something that threatens the elderly. They get stuck they get housebound, physically they can't move. Whereas Fran, although in her 70s, is still on the move all the time. Yeah, what's so interesting about Fran as a character is she's willing to still uh, see where life takes her every day and all the possibilities within that. And she doesn't uh, she doesn't like to be pinned down in any way, whether it's in her own relationship with her friends, um, her ex-husband and also her children. No, she likes to have her own self. Um, she quite likes living alone. I mean, she's she's divorced her first husband, her second partner died. But she's OK alone and she's has good relationships with her children. But um, she lives on her own, basically. I presume a lot of people have asked you, is Fran you? Well, no, not really. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, there's bits of me in all the characters yeah. in the book. I mean, there, there are bits of me in other characters. And I, I had a much more kind of literary career. I don't think Fran is a great reader. And I am a great reader. A lot of my life is in books. Fran is a more, she's a more extrovert, she's a more busybody kind of person than I have ever been. She is very tolerant when it comes to her ex-husband, Claude, who you describe as a bit of a lech. And there are some very amusing passages sprinkled throughout the narrative of Claude and his attractive um, care assistant, which he seems to eye up uh, discreetly throughout the narrative. But it added a certain lightness to um, a book which does probe at some very tough questions in how we look at old age. Yes, well, I quite disapproved of her ex-Claude. I mean, he's a, he's a surgeon and he hasn't led a very good life. He's probably been a very good surgeon, but he has carried on with women all his life. Um, but somehow when you're very old, it doesn't seem to matter so much. And she and she's, she's fond of him. She's forgiven him. She's fond of him. But there's something in her nature, as there is in many women's natures, that is good at looking after people, has an impulse to look after people. Her children are grown up, her second partner has died, so she can't resist going around to give him a meal or have a glass of wine with him every now and then. 
But while I was progressing through the narrative, I got me thinking that, you know, not everyone is a natural born carer, whether it comes to their brothers, sisters, ex-husbands, whoever they, it crops into their life, that some people have a natural ability to to share and support, while other people find it a massive stretch. Some people don't like it at all and, no, and are no good at it. And I have every sympathy with the people who just don't want to look after other people. But I think there is a tendency for women in particular to cast themselves into the role of a carer and I myself have spent a lot of time looking after other people and I quite like it I mean I, I it, it's a natural tendency in me so in terms of the research for the book um you know the the book passes through different um, um housing for the elderly and different types of units and so on you actually physically went and um, looked around, is that it? Yes, I did. I went to look at places and I um, I read books, I talked yeah. to people, but I actually did go and physically look at yeah. various places, yes. And how well are we doing, do you think? Well, it depends how much money you've got, doesn't it? Mm. If, if you haven't got money and if you're on sort of the state care system, things aren't so good at all. On the other hand, within the state care system or on quite low incomes you can find a nice little unit a nice little home i describe one of them in the black country where people are being well looked after with very few resources so it varies enormously what you find you touch on uh, the issue of dementia mm-hmm. in society and um uh, one of Fran's um, colleagues' mother um, has dementia, and and one of another um, another character in the novel as well, and um, it makes her very um, um, stark reading, and um, and at times quite depressing. But do you think that we um, are? Do you think we we need to have um, more uh, supportive conversations around issues related to dementia? Do you think we need to understand it more? Do you think we're fully aware? of the different types of dementia out there? I don't think we're aware of the different types of dementia. I certainly didn't know the difference between vascular dementia and Alzheimer's until a friend of mine's husband got vascular dementia and other people I know have Alzheimer's and you begin when you're young, all old people look the same and all forms of dementia look the same. When you get older and you know people that you have known very well going into a different world, mm-hmm. you, you follow them and you see how different they are. And I think it is more talked about than it used to. I, I think it is more openly discussed than it used to be. But do you think we're doing enough in terms of how we um, support people with dementia in society and families around. Because a lot of the time, it's, if you're not, um, uh, haven't got the right finances in place, that it's left to families to support who may not be knowledgeable or have any of the expertise in um, supporting somebody who is lucid one minute and very confused or possibly angry and frustrated the next. It is extremely difficult. I mean, and I think it's quite hard to learn how to access the right bits of the social care system both public and private I mean I, I know people who have whose lives have been saved by having an alarm button around their neck but finding the right alarm button that the old person is going to know I'm an old person myself I don't talk about old people whether that I will know how to operate that when you know if you have a fall is it something you're going to know how to operate these are these are very technical things and um, we need advice we need care we don't need to be sold devices that we can't use but we need to um, be put in touch with 
advice. I presume, Margaret, a lot of your readers were very happy that you have taken such a challenging topic and explored it in such a creative way. And there's a lot of humour and there's a lot of light in it. And Fran is such a resilient and resourceful character that it um, it carries some of the more um, challenging and darker aspects of the narrative along. So what have your readers said to you? Well, some of them do think it's very funny. I mean, when I was writing it, I had a struggle to make it funny. There were times when I thought, really, this material is too sombre. But it was material that I knew was very important. And frankly, it was the material I wanted to write about because it was very close to me. My my sister-in-law at one point said to me, you know, the only subject now for us is old age and how we cope with it. And people of my age, when they meet, they talk about how their partners are doing, how they want how their illnesses are going, how their children are coping with them getting older. So it is an enormously present subject. So, But to find a tone in which it's not depressing for the reader is quite hard. But Fran is um, unbelievably amused by life and, you know, some of the conveniences that she sees in life now and technology she finds absolutely redundant. She's exploring her environment in every way and... um, you know, that creates the hope in the book, really, doesn't it? Yes, she still has enormous curiosity. Yeah. I mean, she, she wants to go on journeys. And I think as long as you want to find out new things, however old you are, you're still alive and enjoying yourself. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing about technology, Fran has a friend called Josephine. And one of my favourite passages in the book is where Josephine is struggling with her DVD recorder. And quite honestly, that was a simple description of how I have struggled with my DVD player. I simply cannot do it. Well, sometimes I can do it and sometimes I can't. But to make that entertaining to 